as you may have noticed, the Covert Narcissism podcast has a new look. Well, kind of a new sound. You know, it's better sound, a studio recording. I'm sitting in front of a mic and lights and, and a camera. And, and my producer came to me and, okay, yes, those words actually just came out of my mouth. I have a producer. What? I've never had a producer in my life. This is crazy. But he came to me and he said, hey, you should charge for a second episode each week, you know, to help cover these costs, like a, a bonus episode, a patron program. And I went, I can't do that. I can't do that. It's not in my heart to charge for these episodes. I just, I can't. This is my mission. I want to scream it from the rooftops and spread the word about covert narcissism. So I told him, I said, look, we just, we got to find a different way. So you've probably noticed some small ads now in the podcast, and I really, truly want to keep this to a minimum. And if you feel like you need to skip over the ads, you know, that's okay. Just do. I've done that myself in podcasts that I listen to, but you know, my attitude about it's actually changing. And now I'm starting to listen to them because every little bit helps with these costs. And so I do want to support these podcasters I'm listening to. And that's just a small way that I can. But if you need to skip over them, do. It's okay. So instead of charging for a second episode, we're going to open up donations. So if you are finding value in this and you can contribute to our cause, please join us. And as you do, I want to reward you. I, I want to thank you for your, your commitment, for this monthly donation, uh, whatever you're comfortable with. It can be small. That's fine. Whatever you can do for whatever length of time, there's no obligation here. But I want to include you in this mission. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm working on a book and the title of the book is still in the works, but the title I'm liking right now is Grasping Covert Narcissism, subtitled Catching a Ghost. And if you can donate to our cause, I'm going to send you the first chapter of this book. I want you to read it. I want you to rip it apart and give me some feedback. To donate, just go to the top of the link at the show notes. It's nice and easy, and it's greatly appreciated. You all are a part of my journey, so please join me if you can. I wish you so much peace on your journey of healing. Welcome to the Covert Narcissism Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Swanson. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Because, 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 because why? Because of the wonderful things he does? Who is this wonderful wizard? I mean, really? He introduces himself to Dorothy as, I am Oz, the great and powerful. And he says this with smoke billowing and fire flaring and this dominant image of fear and intimidation. Yet everyone loves him. They're singing his praises. Why? Why don't they see the mean, daunting, threatening, terrorizing wizard that's behind the closed doors? Does no one ever see this side of him? Would they still be singing his praises if they did? Such is life with a covert narcissist. I'm Renee Swanson, your host of the Covert Narcissism Podcast, and today we are talking about the Wizard of Oz and covert narcissism. If you've never seen this film or read the book or you haven't seen it maybe since you discovered covert narcissism, then it's time. Go watch it. Before we talk about the wizard, I actually want to take a minute and talk about the Wicked Witch of the West. The Wicked Witch demonstrates the overt narcissist. And I want you to see this contrast. It's so 
right there in front of our eyes, black and white, if you will, although I know it's in color now, but she is openly arrogant and mean. They're all afraid of her. Everyone seems to see this arrogance and this meanness. And I say they're all afraid of her, except the flying monkeys. The flying monkeys, they just go do her bidding. She's mean and nasty to Dorothy, even though Dorothy did nothing wrong. It isn't her fault that the house fell on her sister. It isn't her fault that the ruby slippers end up on her feet. Yet the witch is very threatening to her. She wants what she wants. She wants it now. And she will do whatever it takes to get it. This is clear entitlement. And openly so for the whole world to see. There is nothing hidden about it. And there's clearly no empathy whatsoever for anyone else. Not for Dorothy, her companions, not even, you know, not for the munchkins, not even for her flying monkeys, to whom she is so bossy and expectant of their subservience. She sends her flying monkeys to do her dirty work while she's calling them, you fool. She is a very dominant personality and clearly used to getting her way by whatever means are necessary. She directly states that she is here for vengeance. When Dorothy explains that it was an accident, her wicked response is, didn't mean it, eh? Accident, eh? Well, my little pretty, I can cause accidents too. I can teach you a lesson. She tells Dorothy, just try to stay out of my way. I'll get you, my pretty. I'll get you and your little dog too. She threatens Toto the dog, even though the dog has nothing to do with it. The dog becomes a pawn in her play. Later in the movie, she orders the flying monkeys to drown the dog in the river just to get Dorothy to cooperate. So the, the scarecrow is also a pawn in this whole ordeal. She threatens the scarecrow and even catches him on fire. But again, he didn't do anything wrong. This is just plain meanness. Even as the witch is dying, she voices her entitlement, arrogance, and specialness. Who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness? Wow. That's bold. That's in your face. That's arrogance. With no at all, no give, no compassion, no empathy, no care for anyone else in her world. After she dies, even those who were following her are relieved as they are finally released from doing her bidding. Now let's look at the Wizard of Oz. He sits isolated behind a curtain. Even the doorman says that no one can see the wizard. He seems invisible from the world. The orders are that nobody can see the great Oz. This is what the doorman says. Not nobody, not know how. The doorman tells them that he is in conference with himself. But even if he wasn't, you still wouldn't be able to see him anyway on account that nobody has. Not even us in the palace. Nobody. He hides behind this curtain, and that curtain and the image that he portrays is the image that everybody sees out there in the world. Nobody sees the true man, and no one sees the abusiveness that he shows behind closed doors. Everyone worships him. Everyone sings his praises. The munchkins sing because of the wonderful things he does. The Emerald City is magnificent and beautiful, all because of the wizard. There's one piece that's in the book that was actually dropped from the movie, and that's that the Emerald City is all just a facade. All the citizens had to wear green-tinted glasses to supposedly protect their eyes from the shining emerald brilliance. 
However, it was just an extravagant facade. It wasn't real. There are no emeralds, but just the glasses providing the brilliant shine. The entire city was fake. The doorman, who, by the way, is also the carriage driver, who, by the way, is also the Wizard of Oz. All of these roles are being done by this same person to protect and uphold the false persona of the wizard. Everyone loves him. But what they really love is the persona that he displays, the image that he puts forth and protects. He is practically worshipped. Yet behind closed doors, he's intimidating and mean. He uses fire, smoke, and mystique to scare Dorothy and her companions. He says, I am the Oz, the great and the powerful. How does he talk to him? How talk to them behind closed doors? You dare to come to me for a heart, he says. You clanking, clinking, clattering collection of calignity. Okay, I can't even say it. And he yells at them to be quiet. And in the scarecrow, he says, and you scarecrow, you have the effrontery to ask for a brain, you billowing bale of bovine fodder. This is how he's talking to them. The lion faints out of fear. Dorothy finally stands up to him. She gets mad enough to react back. And she's saying to him, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, frightening him like that when he came to you for help. What does the Oz do? Silence. Never an apology, never even acknowledgement of their feelings or his bad behavior. He does now agree to help them once they've proven their worth. Boy, this whole story happened in my home. His attitude towards these four is clearly, you are bothering me. You're just an inconvenience to me. He finally agrees to help them, but only if you will do this for me first. Go get the witch's broom. No debate, no acknowledgement of how he's treating them. Just do it. No care for their thoughts and feelings. Fast forward in the story. Now they come back with the broom. Well, how does that go? He does not want to make good on his word. And in fact, he tells them, go away again. And when they say, well, we brought you the broom, he says, not so fast. I'll have to give this matter a little thought. Go away. And come back tomorrow. Again, he intimidates them and and treats them as though they are a bother and an inconvenience to him. He tries to send them away and he tells them, do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. And when Dorothy questions him, he responds, do you presume to criticize the great Oz, you ungrateful creatures? I can hear my husband in these words. Do you dare to question me? The Oz continues, think yourselves lucky that I'm even giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. The great Oz has spoken. I cannot tell you how many conversations in my own home, if you can call them conversations, would have fit this scenario. Everything had to stop when the great one spoke. No one could move, fidget, look at the dog, pet the dog. We had to be the captive audience that he clearly deserved. I remember telling a friend once that it was like we needed a fanfare to announce, now the great he is going to speak. Back to the movie. This time, they see him as the man hiding behind the curtain. 
even though he realizes that they see him. Okay, he, he eyes are on. He realizes that he still tries to hide. He tells them, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, still trying to, you know, work his magic with the fire and the smoke and, and make his machines do their thing, still trying to hide behind this image of greatness and intimidation. Go before I lose my temper, he tells them. The great and powerful Oz has spoken. However, this time he is no longer able to hide. He clearly is a fragile and nervous man. And for just a few brief moments, we see a glimpse of realness. A glimpse. A glimpse of true insecurity. Of true nervousness. As he struggles to find words, he goes into victim mode, though. Please don't be angry with me. Don't shout at me. It makes me nervous. Poor me, poor me. Really? After all this and the way you just treated them? Scarecrow speaks up and says, Poor me? What about us? Even though the wizard was the one who was terrifying them, he now wants to be the one receiving their sympathy. He's already forgotten all about how he treated them. This is what I mean when I say with a covert narcissist, the story starts with your reaction to them. It doesn't start with how he treated you, he or she. It starts with, now they're the ones fussing at him. And he quickly finds his voice once again. The shift happens. And if you've been with a covert narcissist, you know that shift. All of a sudden now the shift happens. And now he's hiding behind big and fancy words. He uses his appearance of being so highly educated and thus able to help them. When in reality, the things he's given them do not help at all. Yet in his words, he actually says, you cannot thank me enough. Clearly, this is all about him. He says things, and I'll never get these words right. He says things like, by virtue of the authority invested in me, by the universitatis comitur, whatever that word is, it's all in Italian or Latin, whatever it is. I hereby confer upon you the honorary degree of THD. And they're like, THD. And he goes, "Uh, that's the doctor of thinkology. And the scarecrow says, how can I thank you enough? To which the wizard replies, you can't. This is false words that mean nothing. It's a whole lot of fanfare. And it's clear he doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay, well, at one point he says, you know, do nothing all day but good deeds. And they're called uh, fula, fula, and he can't come up with the word. And he says, uh, the good deed doers. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But he just keeps making it up to sound all fancy and superior. He uses these cliche comments that he doesn't even understand himself. He says, I think you are wrong to want a heart. You don't know how lucky you are not to have one. Hearts will never be practical until they can make them unbreakable. Wow. Covert narcissists have no room for true emotions. They think it is a waste of time. My own husband said this to me of, you know, tears are pointless, that these tears are worthless, that I've, I've, you know, what good does any of this do during the times when we finally did connect on an emotional level? The wizard says, I could have been a world figure, a power among men, a successful wizard, had I not been obstructed by a heart. That speaks volumes to me. My husband told me I live in my mind, not in my heart. And I said, do you think that's part of the problem here? 
He voiced it, but we never got anywhere. It just went away. It's like none of that ever happened. And, and later, years later, when I told him about the conversation, of course, then the gaslighting comes in. I never said that. I mean, it just, again, you already know this. It's pointless to try to talk through this with them. So this Wizard of Oz, he made a false power, a false self, a false wizard to block himself from using the power of the heart. Convinced that the heart or emotions just get in the way of greatness. They are a weakness, and you are weaker for having one. When Dorothy questions if he's a clever enough wizard to manage to take her back to Kansas, he goes into this grand monologue about his great accomplishments. He even claims that he's an old Kansas man himself, and he, he has a connection to everything, which is a very covert narcissistic thing. And this whole monologue is all complimentary of himself and all about himself. He becomes the hero and sings his own praise. Look at all of these wonderful things that I'm doing and going to do. I was born and bred in the heart of the western wilderness, premier balloonist par excellence to the Miracle Wonderland Carnival Company, until one day while performing spectacular feats of stratospheric skill never before attempted by civilized man, on and on and on he goes. So Dorothy even asked him, okay, one of the things he says is, there I was floating through space because the balloon failed to return to the fair, which is his story of how he got to Oz. And Dorothy says, were you frightened? His answer, frightened? You're talking to a man who has laughed in the face of death, sneered at doom and chuckled at catastrophe. I just, I, I, I laugh now when I watch it. Please go watch the movie. Tell me this doesn't sound like your covert narcissist. I can hear my ex-husband giving these same speeches, telling of his greatness using the fancy words. This wizard using all these words like cataclysmic, stratospheric, galvanized, on and on. My husband used to talk in fancy words. And if I asked him what a word meant, he thought that was quite funny. Oh, you don't know that word? And then he'd say, I'm sorry. I thought it was just a regular word. He seemed to take great delight any time this happened. He, in fact, used to tell me that he didn't understand when people told him that he was using big words. They were such a normal part of his vocabulary that he didn't know if normal people knew them or not. This is what he said. It was so clear that he felt that he was above all of them with his superior vocabulary. Now let's look at the citizens of the Emerald City. After he's been busted by Dorothy and the companions, he continues the charade in front of the citizens. None of these people ever see the evil image behind the closed doors. None of them saw how mean and intimidating he was to these travelers. All they see is the image he gives of his greatness and the wonderful things that he does and the wonderful way he's now going to help Dorothy. He brags about how brave it is and how dangerous this adventure is. If Dorothy had called him out, okay, picture this. Picture the ending to The Wizard of Oz now. If Dorothy, out there in front of the citizens of the Emerald City, he's singing his praises, he's going to be her rescuer, and Dorothy calls him out on how mean he was behind closed doors, do you think they would have listened to her? She would have sounded ungrateful and petty. They never would have believed her or given any credence to her words because they were just absorbed with his image. They had no clue how he was behind closed doors. 
The wizard continues his fine display of superiority and specialness to the citizens, saying, good people of Oz, this is positively the finest exposition ever to be shown. Your wizard, and then he throws in some more words I'm not even going to try, I'm about to embark upon a hazardous and technically unexplainable journey into the outer stratosphere to confer, converse, and otherwise hobnob with my brother wizards, and hereby decree, on and on he goes. Well, Toto gets away, Dorothy runs after him, leaving the hot air balloon. And the wizard's words, his last words as he's leaving, you are ruining my exit. It's still all about him. I want to beat my head on a wall. Absolutely no care that Dorothy has just lost possibly her only way home. He didn't care. You've ruined my exit. In the long run, this wizard could not deliver on his promises. He never actually did anything for any of them. Though he certainly gave the appearance of being this great and wonderful person, he was absolutely in love with that image, and most people who've watched this not thinking about narcissism think the Wizard of Oz is a great person. Did you? Take another look at that movie. Does this sound like a covert narcissist to you? Because it certainly does to me. And Dorothy unknowing about covert narcissism, continued playing his game. She put her trust and hope in him. Even after he treated them so badly and with no remorse, he was still her savior, her rescuer. She still said, okay, but can you really do this? She believed him, was eager to travel with him. He hooked her in with his fancy words, his stories of adventure, and his charm. Just like so many of us, we believe they are our knight in shining armor, our rescuer from living life alone, our perfect partner, our soulmate, and on and on. Imagine if Dorothy had ended up in the balloon with him. Number one, stuck hearing more of his meaningless talk. But number two, and more importantly, he has no idea how to operate that balloon. He even says so. A crash is surely coming. Dorothy was saved by Toto. And she had the power within her all along to save herself. Part two next week is going to focus on Dorothy now and her travel companions. We can learn so much from this movie. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen it since you learned about covert narcissism, go back and watch it. I cannot wait to continue this journey with you next week because now we take a look at Dorothy. I wish you so much peace on your journey of healing. You have been listening to the Covert Narcissism Podcast with your host, Renee Swanson. Be sure to check out our website at www.covertnarcissism.com. There you will find many resources just for you to help you on this journey. You can also reach out to me by email at Renee, R-E-N-E-E, at cnglifecoaching.com. Those letters are C-N-G as in Covert Narcissism Group. I do look forward to hearing from you. I wish you so much peace on your journey of healing.